Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. From a session recorded at a recent live event, today we hear from veteran Fidelity Portfolio Manager Dan DuPont speaking with Cord Thompson, BP Regional Sales for Western Canada. Dan shares what the term aggressive patience means to him and lessons learned while investing across his 20-plus year career. Dan also provides an update on his funds. For Canadian investors, he manages Fidelity Canadian Large Cap Fund, Global Value Long Short, is co-portfolio manager on Northstar, and is underlying fund manager on several funds. Dan notes how he sticks to his deep value process throughout the various stages of the market cycle, reflects on the market activity seen this year, and share some perspectives on what's to come. Today's podcast was recorded at Fidelity Canada's recent Focus 2022 event on August 16th in Vancouver. A few slides were used for the in-person audience, which obviously we can't see, but we wanted to share this insightful discussion with our podcast audience. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Welcome back. Yeah, I, was here uh, I heard you had ago. a fun time getting in from Montreal yesterday. Yeah, it's airports these days, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it was 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time when you arrived? Yeah, about that. Okay. Any tips for the audience when it comes to going back to traveling and everything else that you learned yesterday? Patience. Patience. And uh, it's going to cost you a little bit more than usual, but uh, Fidelity paid for this one, so that's good. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, and welcome back as well in the sense of as, you know, yeah. Uh, Dave was alluding to you from a standpoint of your style and your mandates. Uh, My gosh, uh, you're back in vogue, so to speak. Somewhat, yes. Um, I mean, I just keep my head down. That's what I've done for the more than more than a decade now, managing my products. The process hasn't changed, and uh, yes, it's a a bit more in vogue than it has been for several years. We were more in a growthy type market. But now we can see slowly. We see it through the inflows, right? Fidelity is a big machine. We're across Canada. So when money's coming in every day in my funds, I, I can see that, okay, the, you know, people are slowly starting to come back. Um, thank you for the, you know, the, the, the ones that have been around for a long time. I appreciate the support in the process. And uh, hopefully you've been happy with the, with the returns. And I'm just going to keep doing the same process for hopefully you know, many, many years to come. But yeah, the same process I use is now used in global value long short in a slightly different manner, obviously, because we can now short. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to see uh, the market come back a little bit more in favor of value, and we'll see where it goes from here. We'll discuss that right now. Good stuff. So we're going to focus this discussion on your two uh, mandates, Canadian large cap and the global value long short. But I'm sure if I asked a, for a show of hands, number of people, just given all the mandates that you're actually involved with, both as a sub-portfolio manager and portfolio manager, I think most of the audience here has held you probably through this 
whole cycle, and in some cases, maybe some people uh, are just being introduced to your style today. So why don't we actually do a bit of an intro, if we could, and let's zone in on just Canadian large cap. And when you look at the actual management of Canadian large cap, it's very much a style of aggressive patience. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so aggressive patience simply means that when there's nothing to buy, you can have a little bit more liquidity or buy things that are a little bit less volatile, more structurally sound and and strong and less cyclical while you wait to buy maybe slightly better businesses that are a bit more cyclical, but you buy them at a cheaper price, for example. So that's the result of just, you know, being very, very patient and protecting on the downside. I, I like to talk about the volatility tax, which few people think about, but when you go down and down markets way less than average, it's much easier after that to compound money faster because you know if you go up 100% down 50, you know the mathematical average of that uh, is much more than zero, but your return is zero. Whereas if you're in Canadian large cap fund in the last you know 12 years, you have not had a negative calendar return yet. If you own the F series, sometimes you know once or twice it's been pretty close, but it's always been steady as she goes. If it doesn't happen, then it means the market goes down 40% from here till the end of the year, and we're only going to be down 15, 20. So hopefully you'll still be happy. But I think if you're very patient and you wait for the March 2020s to be aggressive, things come come your way. And so when Ukraine was invaded, uh, for example, you know it was time to deploy some of that liquidity in some of these funds that had not been deployed more aggressively. And we bought a few things in Europe and then everything bounced back pretty quickly. So, you know, we stayed back and the market corrected a bit more later in the year. And we found some really interesting ideas. If you're, if the world is your oyster, which it is even in Canadian large cap fund, because I'm allowed up to 49% foreign content. So I can now talk about it, but you know, when Ukraine happened, a lot of operations were in Russia, but were a very small part of the overall businesses of European companies. So we had an amazing opportunity to buy Heineken at a very, very cheap price. And uh, we had owned, luckily, some very cheap defense companies that uh, benefited quite significantly as well. So, um, you know, if you're very patient, you don't do a lot of sexy things. You know, you don't buy software names at 100 times sales. But, um, you know, over time, things compound slowly but surely. Uh, You just need to be ready to do it. And I think it's a lot easier for me to do it by not having to talk to anybody about what I do than you having to explain to your client, yeah, Ukraine just got invaded. We need to buy a Swedish beer company because we think it's, you know, being impacted too much by what's going on. And typically, you know, people who are not in the investment business would say, well, let's wait and see what happens. And a lot of the time it's just too late. So March 2020 is the same, uh, you know, 21 years in the business, like a lot of people here has helped. And you probably have the same kind of reflex that when things become much cheaper and they, you know, the, the horizon looks very murky, it doesn't look very clear what's going to happen. It's time to add a little bit. It's time to deploy funds. And that's, that's what we did there as well. So it, there's no miracles here. There's nothing uh, special. It's just a process that needs to be done every single day. We look at what we own. You know, we, we analyze and sometimes we're not happy with a position. We slowly get out of it. But the core of it is what I tell our analysts a lot of, and, and every one of our new analysts, because they start managing pieces of discipline equity fund for us. And I say, what's in, one thing that's really important for you to do, you're going to see a lot of great businesses um, that are not so great right now that you think can come back to being great. And a lot of the time that's not going to happen. So just make sure that the core of what you own and that's what I do every day. The core of what I own has time on its side. 
when time is your friend, when you own a business like a Dollarama, it's not going to give you a 50% return in a year, most likely. But if you hold it for three, four years, you're not going to be significantly disappointed. And so the core of the returns has come from the metros, the Dollaramas that I own in the fund, um, and quite a few, um, one or two tobacco companies actually too, uh, that have helped. But you know, the, the companies that, they're not explosive, but they're just slow and steady, they help a lot. And then around that, when things come your way, you can buy slightly more cyclical companies that are uh, really good businesses. But um, we haven't had a real massive drawdown except March 2020, which lasted about three weeks. But we'll see what happens in the next few years. We're in a very interesting intersection here. And uh, I am, again, being as aggressively patient as I can be right now. I'm doing a lot of work. Not a lot of purchases, not a lot of turnover, but I know exactly where I want to be when, if things go one way or the other. Okay. So why don't we transition to the other mandate, the global value long short, and talk a little bit about that because that was part of Fidelity's, Fidelity Canada's expansion into the liquid alt market in terms of the being the ability to short. So we launched three mandates. This is one of them. Uh, and in a way, your style's kind of Nicely set up for this. So why don't you talk a little bit about the, you know, from a standpoint, just the overall process in terms of a long, short uh, mandate and how excited were you two years ago when Fidelity Canada asked you to, to run one of these mandates? Yeah, I was, uh, I was very happy because, um, you know, like a lot of people in the business, I started getting interested in investing through, you know, the likes of Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett ran a partnership, which was really a long, short fund. And he invested a lot in arbitrage, which was called workouts at the time. And I've been doing that for 10 years in Canadian large cap fund, you know, in small parts. But, you know, if there's a big spread between where a company is going to close when it gets acquired and where it's trading right now after a transaction has been announced, you know, we can make a decent amount of money. So I've been doing that. But that gives us an opportunity to be involved in uh, even more areas, including uh, long, short, arbitrage of transactions. So if company A is buying company B for shares, we can play that spread, which I'm frankly one of the foremost experts in Canada because I've been involved with 300 plus deals in the last 10 years. You know, there's small positions, nothing sexy, but it's where we put our money in the likes of January 2020 as we were waiting for better opportunities. And when they come, you sell those and then you buy something that's down 30%. So um, the long-short fund gives me the ability to do a little bit more uh, arbitrage. I've been asked to do that, actually, because it reduces volatility for the type of return we're getting at. But it also gives us the opportunity to short outright some securities that are egregiously overpriced. And frankly, when it was announced, you know, I didn't think that we would get into the type of markets we got into, which means the extreme end of the market got to where March 2000 was, you know, the tech bubble, we had some egregiously overpriced securities. We had the GameStop situation. So a lot of very interesting things happened. Q1 of 2021 was, to me, just um, a constant, you know, MMA class of just trying to see how people actually survive this when they are running a hedge fund with leverage. Because this product is kind of a very simple structure of you know, we're long 140% of assets, we're short 40%. It's very simple. There's no debt. Nothing is complicated here. We have the best prime brokers on the street because we're Fidelity. The prime broker is the bank that owns the securities in the bank, in, in the back. Um, so, you know, to make this all happen seamlessly. So, 
it's just been fascinating for me to watch and to be involved with. And frankly, we got some volatility in the fund as well. But I learned an amazing uh, giant amount from that. And now um, I have a new respect. I've always had respect for momentum because I know historically it's been proven to be very profitable and it works. But I certainly uh, have a new newfound respect for momentum in high volatility situations. So I'm not uh, the one anymore to try to, you know, short the peak in the security that's just going up and up and up and up and up and up. I just want to know what's going on a bit more. And, and I just want to make sure that we just have the best uh, return to risk that we can have in any situation. It's been a little bit more volatile than I would like, but I think the opportunity has been amazing. And I would say, um, you may have seen that I, I did send, I don't, I never mm-hmm. send anything internally. Uh, it, had, it had probably been a year, but I did send something last week where I said, I think this is one of the best opportunities you'll ever see to own concentrated val- uh, global value long short, sorry, because the setup is again a little bit like it was in the spring of 2021. We're seeing the extremes. And uh, on the flip side, we're also seeing an environment where Inflation is very high. Central banks are trying to curtail inflation. So they're, trying, they're supposed to be trying to curtail financial conditions, and, and, and they're trying to basically tighten things up. And loose financial conditions include stock markets going up. So it's an intriguing set of circumstances right now. And um, I think global value long short is uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. Although with a little bit more volatility than people are used in, in large cap fund, obviously because the shorting uh, increases volatility a little bit. But I would say the volatility has been typically against the market. So if you put that into a portfolio for a client, that will typically reduce the volatility of the overall client, uh, overall uh, portfolio. So I would assume that would be good, but you, you guys are the experts. You know how to structure all of that. That's not my, uh, my job or expertise at all. But I would say right now, it's fascinating to watch what's happening again. And we are going to try to take advantage of it. And we can't make any promises, but it's certainly in a very interesting setup. Could we have a better opportunity to re-up and, and go straight back up again? I don't think so. And um, we'll see what happens. Um, I mean, things could remain volatile. You know, Bed Bath & Beyond could triple again from here, as <laughs> you've probably been seeing. And, you know, we again, we have a structure that, does, is not influenced by that at all. We can we can short a little bit here and there. I have probably 45 short positions. So it's just a matter of positioning yourself in different little buckets and benefiting from shorting the massive excess in some parts of the market. Um, so I think you know alternatives are the future. I re- that's what I personally believe. Uh, this fund was launched because Canadian large cap was thrown in the screen of a thousand products in Canada, and it was shown to have one of the best uh, return to risk of anything, uh, balanced funds, bond funds. So I think it was top three out of 1,000. So, and we've been doing that quietly, and we're going to keep doing the same process in this fund. But if there's returns to be had, we're going to go after them. So I, that's what I like about this fund is, again, we're going to try to have no big drawdowns. But, you know, we have an opportunity to grab more alpha to go a little bit more aggressively on the up. Okay, I think we've got a slide, too, that kind of summarizes a lot of what you said. Was there anything else you wanted to kind of highlight? So you've got on the top end here, you said 140%, uh, and then 40% on the short side, I think, right? Yes, currently. So I would say typically in a normal market, merger arbitrage on the short side would be 
20% of NAV, and then opportunistic shorts would be 20% of NAV. But I tend to move that around a little bit. So let's say middle of June, when the market was going down and down and down and felt too easy to short and everybody was actually piling on shorts, I moved that and opportunistic shorts came down to about 13, 14% of net asset value. Um, and now we've pushed that back up and merge arbitrage has come back down. Okay, can we take a look also at just a slide that supports the discussion around merger arbitrage? Can you give us some examples of some past ones that uh, you participated in? There's so, uh, there's so many of them going on right now. I think I'm involved in, in 20. Um, Tama Bravo is a private equity firm, seems to be buying every software company in the world right now. So let's say they announce a, an acquisition of a software company that's publicly traded and the stock was trading yesterday at $9 and they say, well, we're going to acquire it for 14 um, well, the stock's probably going to go up to $13 because there's still a little bit of risk. There's two risks. Typically, there's financing risk and there's uh, regulatory risk. So if you have Google buying Fitbit, that risk is not financing. Google is going to find the money to buy Fitbit. The risk is the regulator is going to come in and tell Google you can't own that because you're going to have too much data. It's the same with um, Amazon just announced they're buying Zumba, uh, which is um, uh, basically the vacuum business. Again, probably to have the data inside of the, of the vacuums just to better know how your house is configured, um, which is actually not a joke, um, interestingly, uh, given the times we're in. But again, if, if Amazon buys Zumba, it's not a problem of financing it. It's a problem of, is the regulator actually going to decide that this is too much data for them? So uh, I guess the one thing for those that, are, that want the details, arbitrage works with interest rates because typically an arbitrage transaction will be around six months length. So your alternative is to buy a six-month bond. That's usually um, U.S. government bond. That's the, uh, that's the benchmark. So if you could make, you know, 1% over six months owning U.S. government bonds, you need a spread over that to be involved in arbitrage. So the arbitrage spreads have actually gone up uh, in the last year. So uh, that's really beneficial for us in that fund because if you do a transaction where there's shares offered, if it's a share-for-share share exchange, let's say Amazon offers shares to Zumba to buy them, then you can actually short the Amazon shares and buy the Zumba shares and play that spread. And the money you get by shorting the Amazon shares reduce the amount of money you have invested in this little transaction. So it increases your return if it closes. So I guess um, there's, no, there's no debt in the bank in this fund. There's no leverage per se, but the returns on arbitrage can be a little bit higher if you use um, that kind of strategy. Uh, which we do, but again, it's very diversified. It's you know seven, eight, nine transactions at a time with one to two and a half percent of net asset value. So always conscious of risk. Again, Q1 of 2021 was a fantastic time for us to learn the last lessons we needed to learn. We thought everything was bulletproof. It was, but we just you know put another wall around. So there's a lot. There's even more restrictions now on what uh, what I can do and the num- number of flags that pop up. Uh, on the trading desk, and for me as well, yeah, so arbitrage is, is, is part of that. It's not, you know, over 100 transactions, there's two or three that are not going to close, and, you know, you're going to lose 20, 25% on that when it's announced that it doesn't work out. Um, but that's just, that's just life. Over time, if you do enough of those transactions, you're going to annualize some pretty good returns. And frankly, I've had two uh, in the last uh, 10 years that haven't closed that I've been involved with, and I've probably been involved with 250-plus transactions in the last 10 years. How do you keep track of all those transactions? 
Yeah, I get a lot of help, though. I must admit, I get a lot of help uh, from the street, uh, from our analysts as well. But given that, you know, I'm effectively, a lot of times, the biggest arbitrage book on the street, you know, I get a lot of help. Because, you know, the hedge funds themselves, they typically don't have that much money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 500 million or six, 700 million. And, uh, you know, if I'm at 10%, then it's, you know, over a billion. Uh, and I've been, you know, let's say January of 2020, you know, you get to... $2 billion book in arbitrage. So I get a lot, absolutely a lot of help. And I've also gotten a lot of experience over time. To me, it's now second nature. I can look at these things very quickly. And if somebody tells me what exactly is going on, um, it can be it can be quickly analyzed for me. I mean, the Twitter situation for me is just very quickly analyzable. And I can't discuss it because it's very, very current. But it's a very interesting situation. And not a lot. It's, it's pretty rare in capital markets that the number of people who understand the situation is limited, and the capital that's required to get involved in it is very large. So Twitter is a huge enterprise. There's very few people who can actually say very quickly, oh, wow, okay, this, these are the different things that should be shorted or we should, we should own it. Okay. And this strategy also helps as much as on the, the return side, also on the downside protection side. Correct? Very much so. Yeah. Very, very much so. Absolutely. And it could be in periods where you don't find enough to buy, it could be a very large portion of the net asset value of global value long short for sure. Okay. So let's uh, leave uh, global value long short. Uh, talk about uh, your long positions, mainly in Canadian large cap, but also in all those other uh, funds that you're involved with, which is the majority of where you spend your day-to-day. So how much of a comparison on the long book and global value long short would it be within Canadian large cap? It's somewhat different because um, I can be 100% global. So there's more global uh, stocks, obviously. But if something is big enough in global value long short and I like it enough, it's going to be in Canadian large cap fund. Um, It's just that I can only own large cap companies in Canadian large cap funds. So if a small cap or mid cap in Europe becomes interesting, it will only be bought in global value long short, for example. But um, the, the core of the positions on the global side is the same. It's just that Canadian large cap will have 50% plus Canada because it needs to be 50% plus Canada, which I'm fine with. We've done very well with. We own, you know, Gustard, Metro, Loblaw, Dollarama. We've owned um, a few utilities. And, um, you know, I've, it's been an interesting environment to add and subtract. And, you know, should we own a few oil companies? Should we own some gold companies? So there's plenty of uh, room to move around in, in that fund. Again, the core remains the same, but it needs to be over 50% uh, Canada, as it always has been. Well, we couldn't call it Canadian Large Cap if we didn't, so it's good that That's uh, a very, we have very that good point. There. I tried um, to have the, the name change when I was uh, named on it in uh, 2011, but that just... When we launched the one for high net worth, uh, we, we did use concentrated value, which I was very happy with. So concentrated value being the same mandate, but within yeah, private investment program. Yes, exactly. Got it. Okay. So uh, good timing. My next uh, transition was to talk a little bit about the markets and just get your overall thoughts, knowing that you don't know what's going to happen in the short term. Yeah. But we also got our first question in for the audience here. So do you think this is a bear market rally and how long will it last? Well, for those who've been following uh, what, I, what I've been saying for years and years, yeah, I've predicted a lot of... Uh, of drawdowns, and um, I'm a more defensive investor, so you should expect me to be to have thoughts that are a bit more defensive. But I would say this is an interesting time. Before I was a portfolio manager, I presented to a group of investors in Arizona. Just somebody gave me an opportunity to 
get better at presenting publicly. I was covering the banks at the time. And uh, everybody was super bullish, and I was really shocked. It was, uh, I think, around November 07, and we had the commercial paper problems in August. August 5th, I believe, the Canadian commercial paper market froze uh, in 07. Uh, and then the U.S. one started to really sputter in, you know, a little bit after that, September. And even after that, even after the market had peaked in October, everybody was still very bullish. So it must have been around November, December, 07. And I just, I had a few slides, um, and one of them was, was the inversion of the yield curve. And the yield curve is a very powerful signal. And if anything, it should make us very nervous. And I think right now there's a lot of things that should make us nervous, and that's kind of the last one that came recently where it doesn't mean the market's coming down this week, but it should tell us that there's something in the system that's predicting a recession a year, year and a half from now. And I don't know how much the market uh, goes down if, if that's the case as opposed to just a slowdown. I don't know how robust profit margins are and how concentrated a lot of industries are, therefore withstanding uh, an economic slowdown. But my guess would be let's be careful because profit margins are very, very high. And we haven't had a recession in 13 years. And if we do, there's going to be some profit margins that get you know, cut in half or more. So I think that's what we need to be careful with, and that's why we need to analyze things very carefully. And uh, I do tell our analysts that we had, I remember vividly, we had a meeting in 2010 internally where we discussed what happened in 0809, and, and the main conclusion that we came up with, one of the most important points was companies did not see it coming. Nobody saw anything coming. Every CEO was telling you that things were good, Things were great. It was just like a blip. They blamed X, Y, and Z, but never a slowdown in the economy. And that was that kind of just very just vividly stayed in my mind. And right now what you hear is, oh, you know, like the supply chains, they're still awful. Like we just can't get the sales. It's just interesting what the excuses used are. I mean, you know, Walmart beat uh, numbers that were twice cut today. And so it's, we got to stay on top of the numbers. I think that's where our strength comes in at Fidelity. It's in these periods. So slowdowns. And ultimately, hopefully for me, because I'm a very defensive investor, hopefully we have a recession, we have some credit issues, and we have, you know, maybe a few bankruptcies to clean up the system a little bit. And that's when our fixed income team will become very, very handy. They're um, incredibly good. And, and we don't talk to them when th- you know, times are good. But when times get tougher, they're very, very helpful because they analyze the numbers much more profoundly than any equity investor ever does because that's, you know, the upside you have is so limited and the downside is practically unlimited for them. So we, um, I love to talk to them in periods of uh, distress and um, they basically, you know, were 90% of the time I spent in 08, 09 as a bank analyst was with, you know, credit analysts and people who were steeped in credit. So I think the tougher times are ahead. I don't know how fast and, and how tough they will become, but it seems pretty obvious that we have, you know, we have really high inflation. So uh, fiscal authorities printed a lot of money, which probably created part of that problem. Uh, balance, um, the central banks created all the other part of that problem. And they were way too late in reacting. And now here we are. And they need financial conditions to get tighter, and they're not, which is just fascinating for me. Honestly, I don't know. 
I'd love to hear what every one of you thinks about all of that. But you know, the market just keeps going up and up and up, and the, you know, it's just hurting more and more what they're trying to accomplish as central banks. So maybe they just don't care, and maybe you know, inflation remains really high, and they just keep talking and talking and not doing anything. And, but you know, maybe they should do an inter- intermeeting raise and raise rates between meetings. Market probably wouldn't even go down on that. So we'll see. You would just need to remain very, very knowledgeable of what's happening with companies and just keep asking and just keep digging. For us, it's going to be an interesting next year or two uh, because whether there's a slowdown or not, recession or not, we need to know if these margins are coming down or not because they're just really, really high. Can we draw on your experience here and get your comments on the banks? You were a bank analyst. Uh, a lot of the people in the audience here possibly work for a bank, even yeah. insurance companies. Just get your thoughts on valuations because you know, you're 20 years in the business, never gone through a market where markets or interest rates have gone up. I'm 30 years. I've never seen it either. Rates started falling as soon as I uh, started working in my career. So just wondering how you think the banks and insurance companies will perform through this. Well, um, I guess one of the things that people should know about insurance companies is, um, you know, very low rates kill them. You know, uh, Japan was, you know, just showed us that, you know, 90% of insurance companies go bankrupt if uh, become insolvent when rates go to zero and stay there. So if we get into a deflationary spiral at some point, you'd really have to be careful how much you want to invest in, in life codes and what they make sure you know what they own. Banks are a little different. Obviously, they make their money on the spread, and the asset prices are very important to them. The main asset in Canada is houses, and it's all around the consumer, and that's been doing really well. It's an oligopoly that works well. It's, um, to me, the, the, the thing I want to watch is how much all of this can sustain house prices that drop from here, um, because and how many people are going to get hurt from, from that drop, and how, where does it stop, et cetera. So, you know. Simplistically, if you had only you know three minutes per month to invest, you would say, well, you should buy the banks when they're trading around 1.1 times book, and you should sell them when they're trading around 1.8 times book. And you know, right now they're you know 1.6, 1.7-ish. Uh, they're not. You're, you're not in an environment where it's the best time to buy the banks. But if you own them, you probably want to keep them. They're not going to hurt you too, too much over time. But I do worry about the leverage on their balance sheet, and I'm going to just keep a really close eye on that. The most levered one, you know, like a Laurentian bank, you know, smaller, less ROE. There's just not a lot of capital there as a buffer. You know, when your margins drop by 4%, if your margins are 3% to start with, that's a problem. But if they're 8 it's it's a lot easier. So I, I would start watching what's going on in the smaller banks to see, okay, how much is, how bad is this going to get? So one of the problems of working at a place like Fidelity, if I can be totally honest, is uh, we have so much information coming our way. We read about everything all day long. We meet with companies. We meet the banks. Sometimes we get shocked how slowly the market reacts. So one of the things I've had to adjust to over time is to just, you know, don't overreact to the new information you have. Like sometimes you think the market has absorbed it and it hasn't at all and you get I get continually surprised by how slowly information is injected into the markets and adjusts to it so you know a 50 basis point inversion in the yield curve and you know my mind would have been something the market would have been nervous about but it doesn't seem to be the case but maybe it's just early got it Gold, the ultimate yes. inflation hedge. You ran, I think, the very first fund uh, for Fidelity when you're based in Boston. So for U.S. investors, you ran the Fidelity Gold Fund. What are your thoughts on holding that? 
Historically, gold has traded with real rates in the United States. Uh, so when real rates were negative, you know, you did really well. And when real rates were positive, you did pretty poorly with gold. And that simply means that if you could buy a government bond that gave you 4% when inflation was 1%, why wouldn't you own that? Why would you own gold? But on the flip side, if inflation is 8 and and interest rates are 3 or 2 then gold should be doing really, really well. So it is a little bit surprising, frankly, that gold is not doing better, given just the significant spread between inflation and interest rates. I guess the market is confident that central banks will get this under control very quickly, and therefore gold will just not be a good inflation hedge for very long. I guess that's what the market um, is thinking. It doesn't pay to be significantly overweight gold companies over time because their returns are pretty awful. So it, it's very important that you don't overinvest in gold too often. Time is not your friend, I guess, back to the previous uh, sentence. But I've owned gold a few times over my 13 years as a diversified PM, not often. And I'd say... I'm a little bit more intrigued right now than I was in the past, mostly given that huge rebound and gold and gold equities don't seem to be doing much of anything. So I would say, you know, there's probably a bit more work to be done now than there was. Okay. And if you decided to increase your position there, would you buy companies or just gold ETF? It really, uh, it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I would say right now the stocks are cheap enough yeah. for me to look at the stocks. I've owned the ETF um, in size a few years ago with no gold companies, but I'd say right now, not the way I want to invest. Okay. Uh, the most recent report of inflation came out today, and I think it indicated that inflation was down for the month. But when you exclude gasoline and food, it pretty well stayed the same. Uh, so right. just a question coming in here from the audience. What are your views on inflation? Have we seen a peak? Have we seen a peak? We probably have seen a peak. Um, does that mean we're out of the woods? That's the other question, right? Um, is, does it warrant uh, the rebound we've seen in, in equity markets? Maybe. So we'll have to, to keep following it closely. I think it's peaked. Uh, I don't think it's going to come down as fast as uh, the central banks would like it. But then again, I just, we just have to worry. It's, right, it's quite unfortunate, but we have to worry about what central banks are doing every day. It's, it's, it's part, now part of the investment process. And so are they going to be aggressively trying to take it down if it stops at five or four at the end of this year? Or are they going to say, well, it's on the way down, so we don't need to be more aggressive and we're pivoting. So um, that's, that's one of the decisions we need to make. So I'm going to keep analyzing that and deciding what I think is going to happen. And given the massive rebound we've seen in equity markets, I don't, you know, I don't think it pays much to be adding here relative to that trade, if you're following what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But it, it, is, it is a fact of life now in the investment business. I mean, when you're sitting there in March of 2020, I was, the decision was simply, are central banks going to inject a giant amount of money? That was the decision. That's the only decision you need to make in the third week of March. That's what I did. And, uh, you know, if, if I looked around at all that fundamental data, you know, everything was going down and everything was going to get worse and everything was still expensive. But I knew that central banks and governments would get involved and got fully invested. And luckily, that was the right decision. I wasn't as aggressively positioned as I may uh, or should have been. But you have to take that into consideration. So it's not only a question of is inflation, has inflation peaked? Probably has. Is it going down as fast as people think? Probably not. And then the next question is what are central banks going to do about it? 
Okay. Uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, any of the opportunities you're seeing? Obviously, from a standpoint of the um, uh, first six months of the year, your performance on the shorting side was very good. Probably July wasn't great for you from a standpoint of a lot of your positions. But somebody just popped in here with a question. Are you finding shorting opportunities specifically in cyclical sectors like energy and materials? We've made money, uh, a little bit of money in, in energy and, uh, and, and materials, mostly in materials. But I've been very nimble, and I'm, I'm always very nimble with every position that we have, but uh, specifically there, because the fundamentals uh, in energy, you know, every data point that we see internally is that, okay, maybe two, three years from now, energy needs to be down, maybe it needs to be, you know, oil needs to be 60, but are the stocks overpriced for an oil price of 60? I don't know. So I'm not, uh, I'd say in, in, in Canadian large cap fund, I still own energy, it's not a typical holding for me. It's a low return type business, very cyclical, very volatile. So I've been years without owning oil. I didn't own any oil going into 2020. And then in the summer, ramped it up, made it a huge bet for us. And now I've curtailed that back down. And now I still own it because fundamentals are just too good. Even though I'm a defensive investor, even though yield curves inverted, even though we might be going to slowdown and or recession, the oil companies are still not incredibly expensive. So I've not shorted any oil companies really in any material size whatsoever in materials. There were some excesses there for, uh, for a little bit and uh, we made some money. And frankly, you know, they're so volatile that, um, you know, you don't want to be involved too much and for too long. Okay. You referenced the note you sent out to the sales team just the other day. Uh, it was a great note, so thank you for sharing that. But why don't you just articulate uh, for the audience here in terms of why you think, I think you've got two thoughts on why you think this is a good time to invest specifically in the global value long short. Yeah, I'd say there's very few people who have been around uh, the, the, the business long enough to uh, understand what we're going through right now. And I, I assume in the, in the audience here, you know, you've been here long enough to understand all of this, like the cycles are long and growth outperformed value for a very long time. And it's been, frankly, I've seen it in the industry. We have lost most of the value investors and we've lost uh, most of the best ones. And I don't consider myself a pure value investor, although I'm very evaluation sensitive. I'm more of a downside protection oriented investor. Maybe that kind of saved me. That's why the performance has been quite satisfactory. But I'd say there's a, very, uh, there's a lot of great investors that are out in the industry. And what I'm saying by that is the flows have been horrible for years and years and years and years because performance has been horrible for years and years and years. So growth has outperformed value for a long, long time. And it just got worse at the end. So if you look at charts of growth versus value, we had you know, outperformance of value, which means that the outperformance of growth corrected a little bit. And now in the last few weeks, we've ran uh, straight back up. So we're still way above, you know, March 2020 cumulative outperformance of growth versus value. Uh, we see it internally. We saw some people are very nervous. They're afraid of losing the move back to growth already, which I find fascinating. So I'd say it's only early innings. Although I'm not considering myself a value investor, I'd say valuation is going to start mattering again. Uh, price discovery is going to start mattering again. Uh, Stock-based compensation will be analyzed again like it was in 2001, 2002. And it will shock a lot of people that a lot of these software companies don't make any money, have never made any money, will, will never make any money, and are still trading in 15 times sales. 
So it's very, very early inning. At the other end of the spectrum, my global um, value long short fund has the ability to short securities that are egregiously overpriced. And we've had a few instances, I'd say the, the four times when there was the most egregious overvaluation in some buckets of, um, of the market in history, a pretty good student of history, so I think I'm correct, but maybe if you have some other periods, you can come up after and tell me. But I'd say the worst was January 2021, followed by March of 2000, followed by right now, like right now, and then followed by September of 2001. And after that, it's just, you know, a bunch of other, um, of other times. You know, 1973 had a very specific large cap time as well. That's probably somewhere in the top five as well. Not exactly sure where. But it's, uh, this is a very, very interesting time. And I would be ashamed if I was the SEC or even central banks to see the, the egregiousness of some moves in the Bed Bath & Beyonds and those types of securities. So that eventually will correct, and it will correct when all of that money slowly seeps out of the system because we just inject so much. It takes, again, it takes longer than you think, and uh, it's going it's gonna to resolve itself. But global value long short is one of the only vehicles that can be used to take advantage of that uh, in the industry. And the way it's set up is so robust that even if it gets crazy, you know, we won't, we won't feel, we might have a few, you know, drawdowns that are a little bit bigger than we, than I typically like to have, but the alpha opportunity there is very big. It is my belief that market's going to get a lot tougher over the next five years than they were over the last 10, 15. I mean, you know, the NASDAQ's been up every year for 15 years up to this year, and um, it might get a little tougher. Uh, and having a product that can go short as well, and that is focused on volatility and drawdowns, I think is a, is a good pairing to a lot of other things that are out there. So, you know, I love that, you know, Canadian Large Cap Fund has been a core holding of a lot of people. And I've been working very, very hard, kept my head down, trying to minimize the drawdowns and um, that's been hopefully very working very well for a, a lot of you. But I think if something is going to be the best performing fund in our platform, if markets are flat over five years, it's global value long short because it has so many more things it can do to take advantage of dislocations than all the other products that we have. Final question for you. You mentioned student of history. I had a student from UBC uh, ask me a question this morning. Uh, just by way of background, Fidelity hires about 40 uh, university students every semester uh, as part of a co-op internship program that we want to run. And we also have some Vancouver-based interns as well. But the question was, in their last year of university, any tips on what they could be doing if they want to get into this industry? You were at McGill 20 plus years ago in your final year. Any tips to share uh, with those students? Because some of them are actually here. The tip would be to be open-minded about the investment field you're getting into. Uh, there's so many new things. Um, ETFs, um, you know, option strategies inside the banks. Um, you know, you wouldn't believe the size of national banks. Internal trading operation, and that includes the ETF transacting. And I'm sure, the, you know, BMOs, et cetera, they have uh, the same. So just be open-minded. Don't, don't just think about asset management or, or just, you know, and, and everything is fascinating, too, in the business. So Fixed income is fascinating. Equities is fascinating. You know, global is fascinating. Canada is fascinating. U.S. Is fascinating. ETFs are fascinating. You know, you can you can go in any direction, and I think you will find a place where, if you're passionate about investing, you you'll see that 
you know, you fit right in and, you know, hopefully the, your abilities are, are used as best as they can. But I'd say, yeah, keep an open mind about where you want to go in, in the business. Don't go for the hottest little piece of the business, which I guess right now is probably something like private equity, which, you know, we didn't, did not discuss, but that's, that's going to be a tougher industry for the next two, three years. Okay. Thanks for that. Uh, why don't we wrap up there, Dan? I've been a long-term supporter of your mandate, so thank, thank you. you. And on behalf of all the advisors here, thanks for doing such a great job. And thanks for coming here to thank Vancouver you. today. Glad you're done. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.